Hello. 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 And welcome, welcome to, to Laughbox. Laughbox, the podcast for the Association for Applied and Therapeutic Humor. And now, here's your host, Chip Lutz. Well, here we are, ready for Laugh Box. I am so stoked to share this week's episode with you. Simply because I grew up a fat kid. Uh, I like to eat. I go to bed at night thinking about what I'm going to eat the next day. I'm thinking today what I'm going to eat about eat tomorrow. And my guest this week, Dr. Glenn Livingston, well, he's not too much different. And he shares some great strategies on how you can shift that mindset so you can never binge again. Uh, I hope you get as much from this episode as I did, uh, simply because you can use a lot of his strategies for anything that you're dealing with. So kick back and enjoy. This one is worth the price of admission. Well, hello, friends, and welcome to the podcast. This is Chip Lutz. Today, I am so stoked because I get to talk to Dr. Glenn Livingston. Uh, he's an author. Uh, he's a pretty cool guy. He's talking about something I've never talked about on the show. We're going to, don't want to give you a spoiler alert, so we'll kind of lead in there. So welcome, Glenn, to the, to the podcast. Big cheers to you, buddy. Thank you so much for having me. I was looking forward to this. Oh, me too. Now, for my friends, if you give them like uh, the hot skinny, the down low on who Dr. Glenn Livingston is. Um, well, I guess I'm a, I'm a formerly obese person with a serious binge eating problem for about 30 years. And I, I'm also a psychologist and, a, um, and I, I didn't have children because my ex-wife traveled for work. So I had a lot of time on my hands and I had a dual career also consulting for like big food and big pharma, which I kind of wish I didn't do, but I, I did. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, you'll see it becomes relevant as we, as we go through. Awesome. Now, where do you live? I live in Florida, in Pompano Beach. I just bought a condo on the beach. So I'm sitting and looking at jet skis and seagulls on the ocean. And it's a beautiful day today. You see, and I'm living in Wisconsin, and I'm looking at snow, bear trees, <laughs> bear trees. And it was negative eight this morning when I went to the gym. And I was like, why the hell do I live here? I, I used to I used to live in New Hampshire because I, I loved the cold. I, I love the icy waterfalls and the three feet of snow. And when I turned 50, my bones got cold. And I said, you know, the state motto of New Hampshire is live free or die, but it should be live, live freeze and die. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. It's freaking cold there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. let's, because uh, normally I, I you know, ask a, you know, a little trivia question about, uh, you know, where you live now, but you know, New Hampshire, what's one thing, you know, this is a random question, has nothing to do with our conversation. What's one thing that, like, you really miss about New Hampshire? I miss the mountains in the summer. I, mm-hmm. I miss, I miss, and, and the fall. Like, they just look like they're on fire. It's, it's called the Granite State, and the way that the sun shines against the uh, above tree line granite in the mountains is just, I haven't seen that anywhere else, and um, 
you know, I hiked all 48, 4,000 foot mountains while I was there and I came to feel like a bunch of them were my friends. And so I, I miss Mount Lafayette. I miss uh, Mount Cannon. I miss Mount Washington. I, I, I miss the mountains. That's what I miss in New Hampshire. New Hampshire is one of the one of the two states I have not been to, which is strange to me that, you know, it's it's such a big it's a big state, but I've never been there. Anyway, you should come, well, come to th- come to Thanksgiving with my sister. I'll, I'll take your hike. I'll take your hiking. <laughs> oh, that sounds great. Well, I'm, like I said, I'm really excited to have you on the show today because, you know, me, uh, I grew up uh, a fat kid. Um, I've gained and lost 10 people in my lifetime. Uh, so talking about uh, you shifting the mindset on, you know, uh, from, yeah. Cause I still, no matter how thin I get, I still think of myself as a fat person. Mm. Uh, so, you know, I, I was really excited, you know, to, you know, uh, read through your stuff and, you know, think about mm, how could, how could I think about things a little bit differently? So, but let's, let's go back to like in your journey to getting where you're at now. I mean, what's the whole, you know, uh, what is a little bit about Glenn's journey to, you know, this, this passion of what you're doing now? Okay. Well, I will, tell you first that I'm the son of two psychotherapists in a family of 17 psychotherapists. So oh my God. You, you could say Dr. Livingston, I presume one time if you want to. Um, but, <laughs> but, but, but the reason I say that is because you know, sometimes when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail and you will see that it actually interfered with me seeing what the solution really was. Cause I was so headstrong on, filling the hole in my heart, thinking that if I could fill the hole in my heart that I wouldn't have to keep trying to fill the hole in my stomach. Mm-hmm. And that, that turned out to be a very soulful journey, but it didn't really fix the problem. Mm-hmm. So let's back up to when I was about 17. And I first discovered that if I worked out for two or three hours a day, I could eat whatever I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm 6'4", I'm reasonably muscular. And at that age, you know, I could have six, 7,000 calories a day and it just kind of passed through me and that was that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you've been to a 7-Eleven and found that they're all out of Pop-Tarts or pizza, it's probably because I was there beforehand. That's, <laughs> <laughs> that's, 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 the kind of, that's the kind of binge eater that I was. Oh, I completely get that. I mean, when I was uh, uh, stationed in Norfolk, Virginia, they had an Enemans thrift shop. Saturdays were dark. Oh my God. Do- Saturdays were dollar twenty-five day, where you could get anything in the store for a dollar twenty-five, and I would be like, I buy a whole raspberry cheese Danish. I take yeah. it back, nuke it. Oh yeah, I'd nail that entire thing. I get it. Yeah, I, I would be the guy that the manager starts screaming, "Go eat vegetables! Go eat vegetables!" <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> that um, so that worked for me for a bunch of years. I mean, I I wasted. I wasted years that I could have been putting energy into other things. I could have been, you know, getting into a better college or reading or, you know, dating or something like that. But mm-hmm. I, I was mostly eating, sleeping, exercising, and pooping. That's mm-hmm. mostly what I did in my, my early days. I was married at 22 years old, and suddenly I found myself commuting two hours a day each way to go to graduate school. Mm-hmm. Um, I had patience. So I had to run around seeing patients. I, I was helping my wife to run a business. And I just didn't have time to work out two hours a day anymore. I, I barely had time to work out a half hour a week. It was really that bad for a while. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't, I found the food have a li- had a life of its own. I couldn't stop eating the way that I've become accustomed to eating. And as a matter of fact, 
it got a little bit worse given that I was, I had all these responsibilities and I felt like I needed a bit of a, an outlet. Mm. And it really bothered me. It started not just the weight because I didn't gain that much weight in the beginning and then I did gain a bunch of weight. But the mental obsession was really interfering with who I thought of myself as in my life because I really wanted to be an excellent psychologist and I'd be sitting with a suicidal patient and I'd be thinking, well, when can I get to the pizza place? And I'd be sitting with a couple after an affair and thinking, when can I get to the deli and dislodge my jaw and empty the contents of the deli tray into it? Mm. And that really bothered me because first and foremost, that's all I ever wanted to do was be a really great doctor. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I refused patients with eating disorders, by the way. I, I, I felt like I just wasn't there and I used to refer them out. But I also went to all the best psychologists and psychiatrists and Odor, Overeaters Anonymous and I you know, took medication and I, I even did my own 40,000 person study. I, one of the things I did for corporate consulting was these large surveys and back in the days when the internet was cheap and I had a little money, I, I took five years and I set up a survey which looked at the relationship between the foods that people couldn't stop eating and the, um, and the stress that they were experiencing in their life. Mm-hmm. And this whole thing was a very soulful journey. Um, I don't regret doing it. And sometimes I'd get a little better and then i get a lot worse. So there were periods when I was a little thin and then periods where I was heavier. My top weight was probably around 280, although I stopped weighing myself at 257. And my triglycerides were well over 1,000. The doctors were telling me I was going to die in my 30s if I didn't get this under control. But I, I just couldn't. I just couldn't. Anyway, there were three things that coalesced and made me realize that the love yourself thin approach wasn't going to work for me. Mm-hmm. And that instead I had to be more like an alpha wolf taking charge of this uh, urge in my body mm-hmm. to, to overeat. The first one was that all the consulting I was doing for big fo- food made me painfully aware of the billions of dollars that were going into engineering these food-like substances, like hyperpalatable concentrations of starch and sugar and fat and oil and excitotoxins and salt that were intended to hit our bliss point, you know, they, like, in a way that evolution didn't prepare us for, uh-huh. with, without giving us enough nutrition to feel satisfied. And so like, every time you look for love at the bottom of a bag or a box or container, they, there's some fat cat in a white suit with a mustache that's laughing all the way to the bank. And that started to raise my awareness to think, you know, that doesn't have anything to do with my mama not loving me enough. Uh-huh. Does, that doesn't have anything to do with a hole in my heart. That is real force directed at my lizard brain trying to hijack my survival drive. Right. The second thing that I became aware of when I looked a little more into the neurology of overeating and, and addiction in general was that it appeared that the seat of overeating were the primal drives, like very primitive lizard brain drives for survival. Mm-hmm. Feast or famine, fight or flight. Um, it's the part of our brain that gears us up for emergency action. And the very interesting thing about that part of our brain is that it doesn't really know love. It's the lizard brain, the mm-hmm. reptilian brain. And when the reptile 
in us looks at something in the environment, it says, do I eat it? Do I mate with it? Or do I kill it? Eat, mate, or kill. Uh -huh. There's no love there. Love comes from the mammalian brain, from the, which is kind of layered on top of the, the lizard brain. Mm -hmm. A neurologist would take me to task on this. I'm being very broad in general. But basically, the mammalian well, you're, brain... You're making it so I can understand it. See, that's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's the idea, Chip. That's yeah. the idea. You dumbed it down just enough for me. Thank you. So the mammalian brain says, well, wait a minute. Before you eat, mate, or kill that thing, what impact is that going to have on our, on our tribe and the people that you love and care about. And then the highest level of the brain, the most recently evolved, the neocortex, says before you eat, mate, eat, mate or kill that thing, what impact is that going to have on your long-term plans and the kind of person you want to be and your contributions to society and your sense of spirituality and art and music and identity? What, what impact is it going to have on all those things? Mm -hmm. And so here I am spending 30 years uh, a fortune in you know, money and time trying to love myself then and figure out what the hole is in my heart when the part of me that's addicted doesn't even know love, right? And, and so I started to say, well, there's got to be some type, of a, some type of a model where I can take control of this. Mm -hmm. um, then I was reading some alternative addiction literature by Jack Trimpey wrote a book called Rational Recovery, where if you struggle with drugs or alcohol, it's probably the best solution I've ever seen. Um, and he was very involved with this bifurcated brain. He, he thought we should look at it like the, you know, the primitive brain versus the, the part of us that's really us. And he, he said that, um, you know, you, this is really not a part of you that you want to love. It's not like your inner wounded child. It's not like it's not your Jungian shadow. And in Gestalt therapy, we assume that all of our urges are part of our personality and we're trying to reintegrate and own them as opposed to disowning our shadow and repudiating these urges. This has nothing to do with that. Mm -hmm. This is a very primitive physical urge, much the way your Sexual urges are primitive and physical and are generated by a biological organ. And your, you know, your urge to urinate is also very primitive and physical. And what I got from his work was that I needed to take control of those, my urge to overeat in the same way that I took, took control of my testicles and my bladder. Mm -hmm. So what, what I mean by that is if there is an attractive woman in a bikini on the beach walking by, I don't start shouting at her or run up to her and kiss her. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I might want to, but, but, but I, I, don't, I don't do that. Right. Um, you know, there's a, a time and a place and a way to approach people in a civilized manner. And I'm actually a little bit shy, so I don't, I don't do it like that either. But um, <laughs> it's, it's been hard being divorced. Um, but, but you get the point. Or, or if I have to pee in the middle of a meeting, like, like if I had to go right now, I don't. But if I did, I would tell my bladder, look, you can't go right now. I, I will attend to you. I'll make sure you're taken care of. But right now we're talking to Chip. We have to complete the podcast and you'll just have to wait. And I take control. And I live very comfortably with those urges. Mm -hmm. I'm not frightened that I won't be able to control myself and I'll just pee in the middle of the meeting. I'm not frightened that I'm going to run out and kiss that woman. I'm comfortable with my position in society. I know the kind of person that I am with those urges. And I started to think, well, why can't you do the same thing with food? 
Why can't you do the same thing with food? And the last thing that happened that really jarred me into becoming more of an alpha wolf dealing with a challenger in the pack as opposed to a you know, loving, nurturing mother trying to heal her and a wounded child mm-hmm. was the results of that study. So I had 40,000 people take a test on the internet and they told me what elements of their life they found stressful and what foods they couldn't stop eating. And I found some interesting correlations. The people who struggled with chocolate and all of my binges started with chocolate. They might progress to pizza and Pop-Tarts and anything else that wasn't nailed down, but it always started with chocolate. We tended to be lonely or brokenhearted, or maybe a little depressed. The people who struggled with salty, crunchy things like chips and pretzels and that kind of thing, they tended to be more stressed at work. And the people who struggled with soft, chewy things, they tended to be more stressed at home. Really? Yeah. That is fascinating that there was a correlation between like, you know, what people ate and like their, you know, what was going on in their life, their stress uh, origin. Wow. So I decided to ask my mom because she raised me and she's also a psychotherapist. And I said, mom, you know, I'm in a bad marriage and I am kind of depressed and brokenhearted and lonely. Um, So it makes sense. But how was this pattern set up? You know, what, what happened in my youth that I would rent the chocolate whenever I'm feeling lonely or brokenhearted? And she gets this horrible look on her face and she goes, I'm so sorry, honey. And I, and I said, mom, mom, it's okay. <laughs> I said, this was 40 years ago. This was, this, I asked her maybe 12 years ago. This, this is, you know, 40, 45 years ago. I'm just trying to figure it out. I, I love you. I forgive you. Whatever it is, it's okay. Mm-hmm. I know you had a hard life too. And she says, I'm so sorry, but then when you were one year old in 1965, your father was a captain in the army and they were talking about sending him to Vietnam. And I was just terrified. We had, you know, working on putting another one in the oven and I thought I'm going to be a, an army widow with two small kids and no way to support them. And I was terrified. And then at the same time, my dad, your grandfather had just gotten out of jail. And I had idolized him my whole life and I had no idea he was doing these things and he was guilty mm-hmm. and I was horribly depressed. So here I am horribly depressed and anxious and you're coming crying to me, running to me, wanting to you know, play and be held and, um, and eat healthy food. And I just don't have the wherewithal to do all those things for you all the time. So what I did was I got a little refrigerator and I put it on the floor and I always kept a big bottle of Bosco chocolate syrup in there. I'm probably dating myself with that, um, with that brand <laughs> reference. And when you came running to me, if I didn't have the wherewithal to take care of you, I'd point to the refrigerator and I'd say, go get your Bosco, Glenn. And you'd go crawling over to the refrigerator and you'd open it up and you'd take out the bottle and you'd suck on the top and you'd go into a chocolate sugar coma. Yeah. And I went, wow. So that's, that's what it is. And Chip, if this were the movies at this juncture, Mom and I would have had a big cry and a big hug. Uh-huh. We'd forgive each other, and I'd never have trouble with chocolate again. Well, Mom and I did have a you know a hug, and we forgave each other, and it, it was a good conversation to have. I was uh-huh. able to, to forgive myself. I, I understood things better. It made things softer. It, it, so I no longer had the strength of that critical voice in my head. But my chocolate eating actually got worse, and the reason it got worse was that there was this little voice in my head that said, you know what, Glenn, you're right. Our mama didn't love us enough and she kept, she 
left a great big chocolate sized hole in our heart. <laughs> and, and until you can find the love of your life, and get out of this marriage, you're going to have to go right on binging on chocolate. Yippee, let's go get some right now. Right. And I, I had a piercing insight at that point. I realized that, let's say the emotion is the fire. So loneliness, depression, broken heart. Let's say that's a fire. Mm-hmm. Well, you can have a roaring fire inside a well-contained fireplace in your living room, and it becomes the center of hearth and home, especially in uh, Wisconsin where it's minus eight degrees now, right? Right. It, it becomes the center of hearth and home. People gather around it and they tell stories and they share memories and they laugh and they cry and it, it becomes a, a beautiful place. There's nothing wrong with having a roaring fire, having a depth of emotion. Mm-hmm. The problem is, is, is if there are holes in the fireplace. If you don't have a well-contained fireplace to contain that roaring emotion and there are holes in it, then even one ash can get out and burn down the house. Mm-hmm. And I, I started to realize that that crazy voice of justification that said I have a chocolate-sized hole in my heart, that was the voice that was poking holes in the, um, in the fireplace. Mm-hmm. Now, this next part is embarrassing because I'm a sophisticated psychologist and I've done million dollars, millions of dollars of consulting and I've published all these studies. And this was never meant for public consumption. This was just something I was doing to try to recover. But I decided that I was going to have to be like an alpha wolf dealing with a challenger for leadership. And, you know, when, it, when an alpha wolf is challenged for leadership, it doesn't go, oh, someone needs a hug. It goes, get back in line or I kill you. I'll kill mm-hmm. you. It takes a very serious position. And so I decided that I was going to draw very bright lines so that I knew the difference between healthy and unhealthy food. So it would be like, I will never have chocolate on a weekday again. Very clearly, I knew what I was supposed to do and what I was not supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Then with that line squarely in place, I would say, if I heard a little voice that said, you know, Glenn, you worked out hard enough, even though it's a Wednesday, you're not going to gain any weight. You might as well have some chocolate or, you know, chocolate comes from a coca bean, which grows in a plant and therefore it's a vegetable. <laughs> if I heard a voice like that in my head, I would say, that's not me. That's my inner pig. Mm-hmm. And my pig is squealing for its slop. Chocolate is pig slop on a Wednesday. The, all these voices that are trying to justify it, that's just pig squeal. My pig is squealing for slop. I don't need pig slop. I don't need it out of, out of a pig's trough. I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. And I had this like really crude thing that would wake me up. And it wasn't a miracle. But what would happen is that the moment of impulse it would shift my perspective and remind me why I wanted to make a different choice in the first place. And it would give me those few extra microseconds that I needed to remember who I was and what role I wanted the chocolate to play in my life. And then sometimes I would not have the chocolate. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I would, sometimes I wouldn't, but it was no longer this automatic process. It was no longer feel the compulsion, go do it. It was more like I was making decisions and over time, I started to say to myself, well, nobody's forcing me to, to follow this rule. I made the rule. It's kind of stupid that I'm breaking. I can make any rule I want to. Mm-hmm. And I started playing with different rules. This was all in a journal. This was all privately in my head and in a journal until I found a set of rules that I really wanted to comply with. And I just stopped breaking them. I just started following my rules. And what had happened at that point 
was I effectively had shifted my decision-making about food from my impulses and emotions to my intellect. From there, it was just a matter of making adjustments so that I would lose the weight and keep it off. And, um, you know, and then when I was getting divorced in 2015, I was a minor partner in a publishing company and the CEO said, Glenn, we really need to publish a book of our own so we can attract better authors and show them that we know how to market it. And I said, well, I'm in the middle of a divorce and I have to do something different. And why don't I, um, I have this journal, you see, why don't I turn it into a book? It'll take me a month. So I'd been keeping the journal for eight years at that point. And I took the summer and I turned it into a book mm -hmm. and I gave it to, yeah, well, I was my partner. And he calls me back two weeks later and he says, donuts or pig slop? I don't eat pig slop. I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. <laughs> he's lost almost a hundred pounds since then. Uh -huh. um, and so we published it and, you know, we both knew what we were doing from a marketing perspective from all the years we spent in marketing research and consulting, but uh, we had no idea that it was going to take off the way that it took off. And uh, we now have almost a million readers and we've got a coaching network and I've written six more books and um, it's all because I don't eat pig slop. I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. And now once in a while, people recognize me in a bookstore, but they don't know my name. They just point at me and they go, pig guy, pig guy, pig guy. <laughs> <laughs> your, your new moniker. That's awesome. Yeah. That's, I mean, all right. One, when you're talking uh, early on about uh, uh, big food companies, how they, you know, uh, specifically make things to hit your sweet spot. I did, I did not know that. Um, I make sense um, why Doritos are addictive. But um, I, I did not know that. Um, and then, you know, listening to that process, I mean, that's a, a going through that in your head is to me, I mean, obviously you have to be pretty self aware um, to, you know, kind of like go through that process. But it's almost, I, I would think, when you set in those rules, kind of like a, a moment to moment thing. I mean, uh, almost like uh, one day at a time as far as like looking at the long haul of like, well, I'm never going to be able to do this again. I'm never going to eat that again. Having that sense of loss that you might have uh, when you're thinking about, because um, we always, what we, what we can't have. I mean, it, it, is it more of a, just a day by day getting through, you know, by my rules type of deal? So let, let me speak to that because that's a critical point and it's people's primary objection. Um, let's say I made a rule that said I will never have chocolate again. And mm -hmm. actually I, I do have a rule like that now. Well, Janine Roth was the first person to point this out. Your pig will say, you can't do that. You're going to deprive yourself of chocolate forever. It tastes so good. It makes you feel so good. Everybody else eats chocolate. You're going to feel too deprived. You're going to be a weirdo. You can't possibly do that. Well, I can speak to a couple of things about that. First of all, if I kept eating chocolate, I would still be 280 pounds. Mm -hmm. And I, I might be dead. I certainly would have um, much greater risk of heart attacks and strokes and diabetes and I probably would still have psoriasis and eczema. I wouldn't have anywhere near the confidence that I have now. I, I might never have gotten divorced. I might've been scared to get divorced at that mm -hmm. weight. Um, I, wouldn't have, uh, I wouldn't have come to live on the beach in Florida and you know, live the life that I really wanted to live. I, 
would not be able to climb mountains and spend time on the top because it would have taken me twice as long to get there. Mm -hmm. I, um, you know, it's possible that I could have had a stroke and become disabled at all. And so when my pig says I'm going to be too deprived, well, what am I going to deprive myself if I keep eating it? Uh -huh. what am I? And so there's this deprivation trap. And the way out of the deprivation trap is to think about you're never really choosing to be deprived or not. You're choosing between two types of deprivation. There's the deprivation you feel in the short term if you continue to, if, if you give up the um, whatever it is you're thinking about giving up. Uh, and you don't have to give these things up entirely. Most people don't. But then there's the deprivation you'll feel in the long run if you continue to do what you're doing. And, you know, I, I believe that we fought wars to win our freedom in America. And I would fight for your right to make either choice if you want to. And if, if you want to live fast and die young, like the Hells Angels do, I, I think that's your right to do that. So right. you want to have a donut every day or five donuts every day or eat nothing but you know, McDonald's, it's, that's up to you. I think we have the right to do that. But I would argue in favor of making a fully informed choice. The other thing, Chip, I'll tell you about um, this idea of never is that it is true. I have two more things to say. I apologize. This is a little complicated, but it's important. It is true that the only time you can overeat is now. And so if your pig says, you can't do this forever, I'm going to get you sooner or later, you're going to wear you down. So I can't get you now, but I'll get you later. Mm -hmm. You have to bring it back to the president and say, well, you don't have a time machine. You don't know what's going to happen in the future any more than I do. But you know what? You're really not trying to get me in the future. You're trying to get me now. Mm -hmm. You're trying to say this is too hard. It's going to wear me down, so I might as well binge now. And I never binge now. And since the future is an infinite string of now, since tomorrow when I could eat again, it's going to be now. And as I'm talking and all these words are coming out of my mouth, it's, it's still now. And it's now, now. And it's now, and it's now, and it's now. If I never binge now, I'll never binge again. And so you do bring it into the moment and that's how you purge those thoughts out of your mind so you're not distracted and you don't have your energy drained. Mm -hmm. The last thing I'll say is that the use of the word never is kind of funky in this system. It's the same way that you would talk to a two-year-old about never darting out into the street without holding your hand. Little Sarah, you can't ever cross the street without holding my hand. Never, ever, never, ever, ever, ever. You don't want to say to little Sarah when she's two years old, you know, maybe when you're seven or eight, I'm going to teach you how, even though you will, because the image and the impulse is too dangerous for a two-year-old who doesn't have the wherewithal to restrain it. You don't want her even thinking about going into the streets, so you say never, but you know that with maturity and experience, you're going to teach her how to do something different. So it's, it's really the same thing when you're making these rules in your food plan. Um, you could change your food plan every time you want, anytime you want to, you just present it to your pig as if it's set in stone. And that way you're protected from the impulsivity of the moment, but you can still avail yourself of your uh, wisdom and experience and intellectual understanding that grows over time about what's, what's best for you and all the experiments you do with different rules and food plants. So mm -hmm. it's kind of a dual mindset that you have to keep in it. It's okay to lie to your pig or to pretend like it's set in stone, even though you know you can change it. Mm -hmm. 
and we'll get right back to Glenn, but now it's time for Fun Facts. And since we're talking about food this week, our fun fact is about food. And here it is. Ketchup was once believed to have medicinal qualities that could cure, among other ailments, diarrhea. Yes, it's true. In the early 1800s, tomatoes were believed to have medicinal qualities. Per Fast Company, a doctor in Ohio in the 1830s claimed that tomatoes could treat diarrhea and indigestion, publishing recipes for a kind of tomato ketchup that he soon turned into a concentrated pill. Well, there you go. Diarrhea. People think it's very funny, but tomatoes cure the runny? I don't know. Hey everyone, this is Paul Ozinka, President of the Association for Applied and Therapeutic Humor, inviting you to join us this May 14th through 17th at our annual conference in New Orleans. It's gonna be awesome. The theme this year is Diagnosis Happiness. So we've got experts from positive psychology, neuroscience, therapeutic humor, even comedy, sharing their wisdom on the relationship between humor and happiness. Now, of course, no conference could be all work and learning. So we're going to be right there in the heart of the French Quarter. So you can sneak off, grab yourself a beignet and see all that New Orleans has to offer. Can't wait to see you there. Well, all right, let's get back to Glenn and find out how you can binge no more. Interesting. Uh, I, I, it makes me think, all right, because I love the show, My 600-Pound Life. Love that show. Uh, mainly because when I'm watching it, it really makes me hungry because they're eating all sorts of great things on that show. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, I'm watching it's like, man, I, really, I, I want a shrimp po' boy now. Oh, I want some pizza now. Um, so it, it, if we could shift kind of like into application. So, you know, because their model, uh, like on that show, when they send the people to counseling, it is it kind of uh, uh, that, you know, what happened to you when you were young that, uh, you know, you turned to food all the time. So, you know, shifting it to your model, if they were bringing you in, you know, how would you, you know, work with, you know, somebody that is like, I don't, you know, that I always look at those people. Those people are me without discipline. You know, like I, I discipline myself to not eat certain things because I could very easily just, you know, um, I, I like food. So it, uh, I, 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 I could be there. So how would you help them shift their mindset? You know, application, you know, it's, it's, it's a very practical approach. I start with people by asking them to come up with one simple rule. Like if you take a breath and think about how you're eating and all the things you're doing that you know are destructive and all the things you're doing well, and you only followed one rule and you made it so that it was not too burdensome, but you got a big bang for your buck. It would make a big difference and point the ship in the right direction. What would that rule be? And for example, I know this trucker who was eating at truck stops and eating fast food all the time. And he said, well, I'm not gonna give up fast food, but I won't go back for seconds. And that got the ship moving in the right direction and he wound up losing 150 pounds. Mm -hmm. um, other people will say, I'll never eat standing up again, or I'll never eat in front of a screen again. Some people will say, I will always eat at least one pound of leafy green vegetables every day. Mm -hmm. I, other people will say, I'll always write a hypothetical food plan before I go to bed at night. 
because it's, it's all about planning for them. So most people know what one thing they could change that would make a big difference. And I find that if you don't make it too burdensome to start with, and they just get some momentum, what happens is while people are binging, there's this sense of hopelessness and powerlessness, like there's this force that's taking over them. Mm -hmm. But when you implement one practical, simple rule, regardless of what happened to you as a child or you know, your daddy spanked you or you saw your sister in the bathtub or what, whatever it is you feel guilty about. <laughs> that would do some damage. <laughs> <laughs> regardless of what happened, you know, what's one simple rule you can follow? Uh -huh. And then you don't have to call it a pig. You can call it your lizard brain or you can call it your food monster or your food demon, whatever you want to call it. But arbitrarily decide that any voice in your head, any voice, thought, feeling, impulse, or image in your head, which suggests that you will ever break that rule ever again between now and the day that you die, is your pig. And what it actually says is pig squeal, and you're not going to listen to it. Mm -hmm. And so I tell people to just start paying attention to that voice. When they hear it, I want them to stop and write it down and then ask themselves, how is their food demon lying to them? So if the food demon says, oh, come on, you can just start tomorrow. It's just as easy to start tomorrow. Right. Well, it might seem just as easy to start tomorrow, but the principles of neuroplasticity and, and you know, in neurology suggest that what what fires together wires together, which means if you have an impulse to overeat and then you do overeat, you're going to make it harder. You're going to strengthen the addiction and make it harder to dig yourself out of the hole tomorrow. Mm -hmm. So if you're in a hole, you should stop digging. So that, that's what I call the process of refutation. So it, it's this very, very practical process to draw a really clear, bright line, then decide that anything that says you're going to cross it is your pig or your, your food demon. Mm -hmm. then identify what the food demon says, write it down and refute it. And it's, it's that simple. Um, you, you, you will have more feelings when you do this because the food won't be covering them up as much. Mm -hmm. uh, but those feelings are something you deal with in therapy, not really in the protocol that I give people to overcome overeating. Mm -hmm. And your therapy should go better if you, in this very practical, non-psychological way, stop, you know, stop binging because your feelings will be more available. Mm -hmm. So that, that's what I do with people. I, I just I like that. But, you know, I really, it seems <clears throat> like a really easy thing to, to do. And it would seem to me like it wouldn't just be, you know, a system that's, uh, easily applied with anything that might be uh, overtaking you where you just, you know, making, you know, one simple rule, like I'm, and, and that would be seemingly easy to implement. Like I'm not going to go back for seconds or, you know, like that trucker uh, did, or, you know, I'm not going to eat in front of a screen or I'm not going to eat standing up just something simple that could then, you know, uh, could be built upon as you, you know, add a, another rule to it later on. I would think that that would, there would be a graduation of, you know, different rules that you would apply once you got one down. So it's not like all at once where like, I'm not going to do this and this and this and this and this, but you know, starting off with something simple, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do X. And then, you know, once you get that down, I, I, I assume that then you encourage people to add yes. you know, something else. Yeah. 
And people often don't lose any weight in the first phase. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just about changing your mindset and reestablishing control and, you know, turning powerlessness and hopelessness into confidence and enthusiasm. Well, sure. It, it, that makes sense because it's, it, it's a kind of uh, learning to discipline yourself a little bit um, to, you know, so you can add something new. Like, you know, like I look at it, it's like going to the gym. You don't go to the gym and, you know, start off with like a full blown workout. You kind of, you gradually, I'm going to start off, you know, with something cardio and then, all right, so I got that down. I'm able to, you know, work out for X amount of time. Now I'm going to add a little bit of lightweight training in order to, you know, uh, build some muscle. And then you might add a little bit more. You might add a little bit more just so you're, you're uh, getting slowly acclimated to a different lifestyle. Um, So I would think that this would be, you know, very much the same. And because, you know, what I think about, uh, like, uh, I'll go back to my 600 pound life on, because uh, I, 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 I understand, you know, people's thought process because they're like, oh, I'm, I'm not really cheating that much. I'm just giving myself a little bit here, a little bit there. Because I'm, I'm a firm believer that the lies we tell ourselves are the easiest to tell and they're also the easiest to believe. Yes. Um, and that's, um, you really do have to discipline yourself to, you know, to do something different if you want to get a different result. And I love that. I love the, that graduation that you give people where it's, it's doable. That's the idea. So um, what are some other like uh, success stories that you've seen with people? Cause you know, I, I, I like that. Like I said, um, no matter uh, like here a couple of years ago, I was probably the heaviest I'd ever been um, where I had just like stopped working out. I had stopped, um, paying attention to what I ate. I probably got up to like 260 pounds. It was, it was, uh, you don't realize it until you see a picture of yourself and like, who's that fat guy? And then it's like, Oh, that's me. (laughs) And it was my uh, son. uh, I was out, he was graduating from college and I went out to his college and we were walking around the campus was really hilly and I was really winded. And I was like, I just give me a minute. You know, I'm just a little winded because you know, I'd been in the hospital a couple months before and I you know, since I've been in the hospital, I get a little you know winded. He goes, you're not winded because of that dad. You're winded because you're fat. And I was like, thanks, son. And he, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it was, it was the catalyst that I needed, you know, to, you know, make, uh, make a change. And so like, you know, the last couple of years I've, you know, uh, you know, I dropped uh, 50 pounds and I, you know, I've maintained, you know, that weight and, you know, going to gyms, eating sensibly and stuff. But even still, I still see myself as, you know, uh, a fat kid. And so like, is there a way to kind of like shift that? Because I think that maybe that's something like negative that, identification with that is sometimes still um, maybe a hindrance in um, looking long-term. I find that there's a process and it, it takes a year or two, but there's a process of finding the right set of rules and then allowing the, those rules to become part of your identity. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, like I, like I'm not at this point. I'm not thinking every day. Oh my God! I'm so. I. Oh my God! I can't have chocolate. I can't have chocolate. I can't have chocolate. Mm-hmm. I actually. I haven't had a craving in years, and I. I've just become someone who doesn't eat chocolate. I've just become that kind of person. Um. And. You know, once once that had been the case, and that was really the trigger for me. So, really, once I felt solid about the fact that I'm someone who doesn't eat chocolate. I was really feeling solid about myself as a thin person that um, a lot of people feel like that fat guy is still waiting for them. 
to mm -hmm. you know just, just I, I don't just to take over yes yeah just to, just to take over <laughs> take over i'm yeah. claiming this back <laughs> I, I i i don't feel like that anymore because i install installed this solid rule and it became part of my character okay character is nothing more than your habitual way of responding to temptation mm -hmm. so it became part of my character and then after a couple of years where I felt like it was just not possible for me to have chocolate anymore, I realized that I was thinking of myself as a thin guy. I mean, I'm not a skinny guy. I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm like 208 right now and I, yeah, I might be better off around 200. Um, so I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not a skinny guy, mm -hmm. but I'm not, I'm not a fat guy and it just kind of settled into my identity, mm -hmm. which is not to say, I, I think that if you look at most people who were formerly obese, you can still see a bit of shame on their face. Mm -hmm. And if I think about it, I still do have some shame of over the 30 years that I was, you know, eating out of the garbage and stealing my roommate's food and, <laughs> you know. <laughs> True confessions, I love it. <laughs> oh, oh, they, 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 there's nothing that you or anybody else has done with food that I haven't done, except for throw up. I, I can't manage to throw up. Yeah, I can mean either, oh, yeah. Um, but yeah, <laughs> eating, eating the garbage, eating off the floor, I always joke that the floor gave it more flavor. Yeah. Um, yeah going to seven different drive throughs so that I didn't have to face any one person knowing how much I was eating. It's, it was horrible. It was really horrible. And so, so I, I still do carry some shame about that. And I don't know that I have a miracle way to let that go. Right. Um, sometimes I don't think we really have to. I think that in part, those memories keep us, you know, keep us where we are. But, right. Um, I, I, would, I, I can, I can see where that would be the case. Absolutely. Where like, you know, yeah, I'm not there, with anything in my past that I'm not really proud of, you know, that those sometimes are the things that keep me on the straight and narrow on what I'm doing now. It's like, I don't want to go back there. But Chip, I don't have fear. Mm -hmm. the, the, this method really, be, because our biology is set up so that we really can withstand any temptation and make choices about what we're going to do about it. Mm -hmm. When you, cultivate confidence that you can make a rule and stick to it and you see that you do the fear goes away mm -hmm. i i'm i'm no longer a compulsive overeater i don't describe myself like that anymore i'm no i'm no longer a binge eater that's in my past I, do i occasionally make mistakes sure but it's not like not like an alien came down and implanted something in my brain that's gonna you know force me to eat pizza until i die Mm -hmm. it, it's um it's just it's just a mistake if that happens right oh well i tell you what glenn i have really enjoyed talking to you i mean it made me think when you were talking and thinking about uh some of the foods that i really enjoy and when i turned to those foods it was you know i was thinking like with your chocolate i was like you know like pastries donuts a those speak love to me um so and i was yeah, thinking a little bit about you know why why would that be um you know so be, and the thing about it is like that's where the best times I had with my dad when I was growing up. Yeah. Seven, seven kids. I mean, I, when we had like, um, you know, go up to the store, you know, mom, my mom would put us on a diet. We'd go up to the store and, uh, he'd buy a package of donuts. He's like, all right, we've got to eat all of these before we get home. And so, but those were just like really, you know, really great times. So I had just him where there was nobody else around. So, um, that, that wait, wait, was there anything else about that time with your dad alone that wasn't associated with donuts? What do you mean? Well, um, you know, my, my, grand, my grandfather used to take me to Burger King and I'd get 
two big whoppers, two big mm -hmm. cheese whoppers. And I, I love my grandpa. He, he just taught me so many things and he was such a funny guy. And it was my, um, like my, one of my favorite memories from my childhood. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately it was associated with the two big cheese whoppers of Burger King. Mm -hmm. And so I put some effort into thinking, what was it that I really loved about my grandpa and my time with him? And it, it was, you know, the things that he taught me and the jokes that he told and, yep. you know, when, when he would drive around the parking lot in circles to, you know, make me laugh. And I, I made an active effort, that emotional connection while I, while I tried to separate it from the, um, you know, from the cheese whoppers. Mm -hmm. And I found that that made it easier to stop having cheese whoppers because I didn't have to lose my grandpa just to stop having cheese whoppers. Right. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I mean, cause those were like basically the same type of thing. Those were really, really, um, uh, were a lot of fun times with my dad where he would, you know, share things that, you know, normally you wouldn't hear. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So like I said, really fun. If people want to get a little more information on, you know, what you're doing, um, I know you talked about, uh, uh, sharing the book with people, you know, where, where, do, where do you want them to go? How do they connect with you? So if you go to neverbingeagain.com and click the big red button, you'll find some place where you can sign up to get a free copy of the book in Kindle, Nook, or PDF format. So a free copy of Never Binge Again in Kindle, Nook, or PDF format. We also do have the Audible version and the paperback version, but there, there's a charge for that. Um, and two other things. I know this sounds really weird in theory in the abstract. Um, you must be thinking, why does Chip have this doctor on who's got a pig inside of him and he doesn't eat pig slop and, and what? And it's, it sounds really harsh and weird, but it's actually a very compassionate approach in the, um, in the implementation. Mm -hmm. And so I recorded several full-length coaching sessions that I'll send to you when you sign up for that free book. And that's also free. And that way you can hear how we change people's sense of hopelessness and powerlessness and, and despair into excitement and enthusiasm and hope in just one session um, by the actual practical coaching of them. Um, and then finally, I set up a broad range of food plan templates because I know that people get a little worried about how to implement the rules and what rules should they have. And I just wanted you to have examples. I call them starter templates because I'm not going to tell you what to eat. I, I both don't have the expertise to do that. And secondly, uh, it doesn't really work when people tell you what to eat because your mm -hmm. pig eventually says, oh, that, di that diet's no good. You have to do it for yourself. So set up a bunch of food, food planned templates, no matter what dietary philosophy you have, whether it's low carb or high carb or macrobiotic or point counting or, you know, vegan or whole foods, whatever you're doing, ketogenic, whatever you're doing, there's a set of templates that you can get started with to make your oh, own. Cool. Yeah. Neverbingeagain.com, neverbingeagain.com. Click the big red button. Well, thank you for uh, all that free stuff. I'm going to check out those templates. That sounds pretty cool. Um, now, if we were really at a happy hour, having a couple brews, I'd give you some kind of drunk there. But since we're not, I'm just going to ask you a few random questions from my overstuffed Would You Rather book. Glenn okay. Livingston, are you game? I'm game. All right. I always, did, I always apologize in advance. I never knew where this book's going to open to. So, okay. all right. First question. <laughs> Would you rather have, Glenn, a fat, nasty ass or floppy jaws? 
<laughs> Dude, <laughs> I'd rather have a fat nasty, fat nasty ass. Okay. Sorry, I told you. I didn't know. All right. Um, would you all, <laughs> this one, another one. Would you rather always, eat sta- always have to eat standing up or always enter your car from the passenger door? Eat standing up. All right. All right, last question. Would you rather have your breath smell like a bad fart or have your laugh sound like a fart? <laughs> I'd rather have my laugh sound like a fart. Yeah, me too. Um, me too. Well, I tell you what. That, that, uh, that's, like, I, that's like the game I played in college about what's, what's the worst possible way to die. You know, like, like you know, throw someone in a lukewarm pool of diarrhea and electrocute the sides and they, <laughs> they, they, they have to tread water until they, they can't anymore. <laughs> That's awesome. That's great. I love that. Oh, um, well, that was fun. Uh, really fun conversation. Thanks so much. Um, I, I, I wish that they would bring you on my 600 pound life to start people off. That would be awesome. I'm working on those kind of things. I, I got a call from Dr. Oz about a year and a half ago, but I blew it. Um, so we're, I'll get there. All right. Well, we're looking forward to it. Thanks so much. Thanks, man. It's good. Well, there you go. Dr. Glenn Levingston, I presume. Wasn't that a great conversation? I tell you, I had so much fun talking to him, and I learned so much in the process, and I hope you did too. I'm going to put all his information in the show notes, so I'm going to encourage you to check him out, uh, get in touch with him. I'm also encourage you to go to AATH.org. Uh, Check out the conference. Paul gave you an invite. I'll give you an invite. You want to be at this conference in May in New Orleans in the Big Easy. If nothing else, you're going to have some great food. So I hope to see you there. And until next time, this is Chip Lutz saying, hey, I'm going to keep the laugh on for you. Thanks for listening to Laugh Box. If you'd like to learn more about AATH, visit our website at www.aath.org or email the host at chip at unconventionalleader.com. And if you'd like to be particularly awesome, leave us a review on iTunes. And or tell your friends about how awesome the podcast is. Unless you didn't think it was awesome. And then just keep it your little secret. Or tell them it was awesome and then laugh to yourself about how you're going to be wasting an hour of their time while you're out doing something productive like handing out heads of cabbage at a Miley Cyrus concert. (laughs) Thanks again for listening, and may the farce be with you.